Cheer up. You're worse off than you think. Those humorous and very memorable words were written by the late Jack Miller. He was a pastor and writer within the PCA, and he wrote them as a way to remind his people to flee to the abundant grace and mercy of God. After all, that was the only hope they had. If you had asked me prior to this week, I think I would have told you that the murderous hatred of the ten sons of Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah was indeed the chief obstacle to Jacob and his sons being restored. Now, I still think that's the chief obstacle. When ten of your brothers can't decide whether or not they want to kill you or sell you into slavery, and they have to get talked into selling you into slavery, that's a problem. And I think that the way Moses shapes the story bears it out that indeed the chief obstacle to all of this is whether or not the ten brothers still bear the same kind of hatred and animosity towards the two sons of Rachel. But it's not the only issue that has to be overcome. No, things in the tents of Jacob are worse than one very large pressing issue. What Jack Miller said of us is also true of Joseph and his brothers. Things are indeed worse than they think. The desire for fratricide is not all that must be overcome. There are multiple aspects of life in a fallen world that God must overcome if this family is going to be restored. And friends, we need them to be restored. We need them to be saved. We need them to be delivered because as we saw last week, all of the promises of God are riding on this particular family. These are the people of God. And we need God to rescue them. We need God to deliver them. Now, if you look at your bulletin this morning, you'll see the big idea of our time together, and it's this. God overcomes a fallen world to bring salvation to his people. See, it isn't just the sinful intentions of the brothers that have to be dealt with. It isn't just the murderous machinations of the ten brothers who were not born to Rachel that have to be overcome in order for God's people to be saved. The scene, or this particular text, unfolds for us in six different scenes. And in each of them, we want to look at one particular aspect of life in a fallen world that God's going to have to overcome. The first, the obvious one, is the famine. Now, the older I get, I want you to understand, and I think you know this, those of you who are uh, of a different vintage than I am, the older I get, the more dissatisfied I am with my physical body. Not in a vain way, I hope. Not in a way that says, you know, I remember when I used to do this, I remember when I could go outside and play all day and come in and not be tired. No, but as I get older... I have this sneaking suspicion 
that my body is actually trying to kill me. And it troubles me. But I'm not the first to make that particular observation. The early church was served by a wonderful pastor and theologian known as Origen of Alexandria. And Origen wrote a very helpful little book called On First Principles. And when he was talking about the decay of our physical bodies, and when he was talking about what happens to us in this sort of physical realm, he writes this, the suffering of our bodily existence plays a role in God's providence. Well, how exactly? He writes, our vulnerability to pain, hunger, desire, and fear influences and guides us to salvation. God then uses the suffering of the body and the mind to heal our souls. Well, that sounds wonderful, and it's great that the Lord does this, but what does that absolutely what does that have to do with this particular story? Well, remember at the end of chapter 42, the text we looked at last week, when uh, when the brothers came back and gave their report and said, hey, if we go down again, we've got to bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob says, no, absolutely not. You're not going. Final answer, go to your room. We're not going to talk about this. But as Alex read for us this morning, and as they uh, broached this idea that, hey, Dad, we need food, or actually he says to them, go again and buy us a little food. They're the ones who come back and go, "Uh, yeah, there's a problem with that. We can't do it. Origen then writes this. It is Jacob's pangs of hunger and fear of death that induce him to re-examine the issue of returning to Egypt. See, God providentially uses his physical need to bring about this work of redemption, to bring about this work of restoration. Meeting his physical needs, we'll see then providentially that his other needs are met, his need to be reunited with his son, his need to see his family reunited and whole. It's going to meet his spiritual needs. And we are no different from Jacob. We are whole people. God uses our fallen, whole, decaying selves to his ends and to his glory as he shapes and molds us. And that's a good thing. It's wonderful to know, isn't it, that as our bodies betray us, the Lord is sovereign over even that. That he is using the betrayal and the decay of our physical selves. He's using um, these things that honestly we just get tired of having to deal with. But friends, our God's greatness is such, his providence is such, that he's using those things to fit us for an eternity with him.
Well, the second thing that we see that has to be addressed is fear. In chapter 43, verses 16 to 25, we have the second scene. The brothers, uh, 11 of the brothers have made the trip, excuse me, 10, because Simeon's still in jail in Egypt with Joseph. And so the 10 travel down and they are immediately taken to Joseph's house. And they're thinking to themselves, this can't be good. This is a private place. It's a quiet place. It's a grand place. It's the kind of place that people take you when they want to get rid of you and not have anybody know that you've been gotten rid of. And so in verse 18, Moses tells us that upon seeing where they are going, they are afraid. And they don't hide it particularly well. Because then in verse 23, Joseph's steward comes to them and says, Hey, listen, don't be afraid. You've come to me. You've talked to me about this issue with the money. Don't worry about it. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Verse 23, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then to further put an exclamation point on all of this, he brings Simeon out to them. Fear is one of the things that's going to need to be overcome. The brothers understand that Joseph is powerful. The question, however, that they have not yet resolved is, is he good? They understand that Joseph is powerful, but they don't know whether or not he is good. Now, as we've seen, as we've made our way through the story of Joseph, the ways in which Joseph points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the issue that most of us have is not this question of, okay, we know that Jesus is powerful, but is he good? I think more often than not, we flip it. We would affirm Jesus' goodness, but we lose sight of the fact that he is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. We lose sight of the opening scene of the book of Revelation. Keep your finger in Genesis 43. But turn with me, if you would, all the way to the back of your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. For in Revelation chapter 21, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, In verse 10, John has set the scene. He's on the island of Patmos. He's exiled there because of his testimony of Jesus and the gospel. He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying. And then he tells us what it is that Jesus wants him to write. Verse 12, that I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, let's pause there and remember who's writing and whom he is writing about. This is John, the beloved disciple. This is John, the one to whom Jesus said as he was dying on the cross to his mother and to John, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. This is the disciple that had a love for Jesus that words of Scripture tell us were unlike any of the other disciples. We also know at this point that John is in exile because of the testimony of Jesus. John is the beloved disciple, and John is showing in very uh, very obvious ways his love for Jesus and of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. So now look at verse 17. John, the beloved disciple, in exile because of Jesus, writes, When I saw him, namely the resurrected Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Friends, I think we would all sit here this morning and bear testimony to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful for that. We should. But I think we also forget at times that this Jesus who is good is also the Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who is seen by the beloved disciple and he falls at his, on his face as though he were dead. He is both good and powerful. Let us not forget either of those things. Well, the third scene, and what must be overcome, is family. There in the house, Joseph comes. He inquires of his father, of their father. And then this Egyptian, they think, shows a freakish knowledge of their family. They're seated for lunch. And as they are seated for lunch, we're told in verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. Joseph sits his brothers in birth order. And then he shows favor to the youngest. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So in other words, they drank and they drank a lot. And they hung out. But we're beginning to see, we, we understand, and the heading in the ESV is going to show it even more. Uh, we're we're going to see it even uh, more clearly. Joseph is testing his brothers. What's going to happen when I show favor to the youngest? I've made them uneasy. I've got them sort of on their guard. And when I show a five times favor to Benjamin, when I bestow favor to the youngest and not to the oldest, what's going to happen? There are still family dynamics that Joseph does not know. There are things 
uh, machinations within the family that Joseph is not sure of how his brothers are going to respond, and he wants to know. He wants to figure this out. And I think we're all aware of the way that family can be both a great blessing to us, but I have also learned pastorally that family can occupy a huge place in our fears and in our worries. Tim Keller has said that he's learned as the parent of adult children that he'll only ever be as happy as his least disenfranchised child. Whichever grown child in his family is struggling the most, Keller will say that's, that's about where my level of happiness is going to be. Our families can be, they are a huge blessing. Yet at the same time, we understand the central role they play and how much of our fears and concerns our families take up in our lives and in our minds. Well, the fourth scene then, we have another F, we have another thing that needs to be dealt with, another thing that the Lord's going to have to overcome, and that's still this question of, these are brothers who will gladly either sell into slavery or at least entertain killing a brother who is of one of Rachel's boys. And the question here is, have the brothers really changed? They didn't bat an eye when they were in Joseph's house, and Joseph showed a really surprising favor to his brother Benjamin. They are amazed that he knows their birth order. Moses tells us that at the end of verse 33. But they go along, and they drink with Joseph, and they are merry with him, even though Benjamin has been shown this kind of favor. But have they really changed? So Joseph sets up this particular test. He tells the steward of his house to take his silver cup, the cup from the table, and to put it in the bag of his brother Benjamin. And the question then, the test is this. When the last son of Rachel is threatened, how will the other ten respond? Are they going to act differently than they did when Joseph was threatened? Have they really, as they've said, have they acknowledged that the Lord has discovered their guilt and they are repentant for it? Now, friends, please understand, this question is not just going to be answered here. We're going to see it again at the end of the book. They are still concerned with how Joseph is going to respond to them and to what he they did to him. But it's an interesting question. Joseph is trying to discern, he's trying to determine, have the brothers really changed? When Benjamin is threatened, how are they going to respond? Well then, in one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible, and what is a stunning and really moving picture of forgiveness. We're told that when it's discovered that uh, Benjamin's, the, the cup is in Benjamin's bag, we're told in verse 13 that they tear their clothes, every man loads his donkey, and they're going back to the city. They're going not as one, they're not going to offer their brother up as a sacrifice. 
but rather as 11 unified brothers, they're going to go back and they're going to face this together. Now, it's what happens in chapter 45 that generally grabs our attention. That wonderful declaration in chapter 45, verse 3, I am Joseph, right? That's the part we run to. We're like, wow, dude, that's really like if you're going to do a reveal, that's the way to do it. Bring him back and like, I'm Joseph. I, that is that is just, it's an amazing part of the story. But let's remember, Moses is such a good storyteller. And he's subtle. I wonder this morning if we were playing Bible Jeopardy and you were to take uh, Old Testament narrative for 500 and the answer is he gives the longest speech in the book of Genesis. How many of you would hit your buzzer and say, who is Judah? We'd think it was probably Abraham or maybe Noah. It would be somebody else. Uh, we would not have picked uh, the scoundrel that we meet in Genesis chapter 38. But beginning in Genesis chapter 44, we get a little bit of it in verse 14. But then in verse 18, we see Judah doing something really, really amazing. We see Judah going before Joseph and pleading his father's case. Fourteen times in his speech, he mentions his father. And four times he says to Joseph in some variation, hey, listen, if the boy doesn't go back, it will kill my father. Here's why I think that is amazing. It is amazing because the reason we got here in the first place was because of just the obvious and really shameful favoritism that Jacob showed both Joseph and later Benjamin. We're here because when, when Jacob was going to meet his brother Esau, he took the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and put them in the front. And then he himself came. And then, or excuse me, then the sons of Le Leah and her sons came. And then he came. And then after that, you had at the very back, you had, uh, you had Rachel and Joseph and Benjamin. The brothers remembered the fact that their father was willing to use them and sacrifice them as a human shield. They hadn't forgotten about the coat. They hadn't forgotten about the obvious favoritism that Joseph was being shown. They hadn't forgotten the fact that when they come back without Simeon and say, hey, if we're going to go back, we've got to take Benjamin with me. Jacob doesn't really make that big a fuss about the fact that Simeon is in jail in Egypt. But he makes a really big deal about the fact of you're not taking Benjamin. I have two sons. One was taken from me. You're not taking this one. Friends, Judah's speech lets us know that he has forgiven his father. 
If you're here this morning and you are a father, you are aware of how desperately you need your children's forgiveness. And if you're here this morning and you have a father, you are painfully aware of how hard it is to forgive your father. We love to hold on to that. And so this thing that that Jacob desperately needs and this thing that Judah needs to do, but it's really hard. Friends, in the speech, we see the Spirit of God has does this, He's done this wonderful work in Judah's life. Judah can forgive his dad. See, this isn't just about, okay, I've made peace with my brother Benjamin. And at least he's not as annoying as Joseph was. He's not a little know-it-all. And so, okay, we can put up with him. And so if you're going to take him back, yeah, we'll all go because we don't want to see harm come to him. No, this is deeper than this. And his speech betrays it. Judah is pleading his father's case. Judah is going before Joseph and he's letting Joseph know that he really and truly has forgiven his father. And because he is forgiven Jacob for his favoritism, he can stand and plead for Benjamin. The brothers have changed. God has done this wonderful work of grace in Judah's life. Look at Chapter 45, verse 1. This morning in confessor's class, I I found out much to my chagrin and horror that there were some folks in confessor's class who had never heard the classic conjunction junction. And thanks to an iPhone and YouTube, we have remedied that. They are now aware of the fact that conjunctions hook up words and phrases and clauses. Look at the first word of chapter 45, verse 1. Then. Then. Joseph hears the forgiveness for his father. Joseph hears the speech marked with forgiveness by Judah. And then Joseph reveals to them, I am Joseph. And I love, I love, I love how verse three ends. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Huh, you think? Here's a guy who can snap his finger and throw you all in jail, and no one will ever know where you are. They will never find your bodies. And he's shown one of you a tremendous amount of favor. You should be dismayed. But notice then, I I love how Joseph responds to this. And friends, this is such a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. Look at his first words to them then in verse 4. Come near to me. Don't be afraid of me. Come near to me. 
Again, in Revelation chapter 1, as uh, as John falls at the feet of the Lord Jesus, I, I love the first words of Jesus. It's, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come near to me. And then Joseph is going to explain his presence in Egypt. He's going to explain what's going on. And three times, and again, friends, through repetition, the author lets us know what is important. Three times in the speech to his brothers, Joseph says, God sent me here. In fact, look at verse 8 of chapter 45. So it was not you who sent me here. Because they're going, really? Because it kind of felt like it was us. Like, we're the ones that got paid. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph speaks words of forgiveness. And when the brothers are dismayed and they don't know what to say, he says to them in this beautiful picture of the gospel, come near to me. This is what God is doing. You didn't do this. You did. But it was not you who sent me here. It was God. Now, we'd love to say at this point, isn't it wonderful? Joseph is this beautiful picture of Jesus, and they're all going to live happily ever after. Uh, that would make for very boring reading. And quite honestly, uh, it would make us all feel much worse about ourselves than we normally do. And so I love what happens next as they're going to get sent back to Egypt. I love the fact that Joseph is really, really human. And I love the fact that he can't just resist showing, a, showing some more favoritism, uh, not to the ten brothers that he has forgiven, but he's going to show favoritism to his, his mama's other boy. In chapter 45, look at verse 22. He's sending them all back. Right, Pharaoh's gotten in on the deal. Hey, listen, take the wagons, go get the family, right? We're going to ride down in, in, in the RV, none of this in the family truckster. Send the RV, they're going to come down in style. Uh, send them all the provisions, all that. And then in chapter 22, to each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. Well, that's good. It's a rough trip. You're going to need a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Couldn't resist, could he? Joseph is going to show that little bit of favoritism to his brother. And again, it is such a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's a frustrating picture of the Christian life. But it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Joseph can be so overwhelmingly gracious and magnanimous in his forgiveness. He can give us such a beautiful picture of Jesus and the gospel. And yet, at the same time, be, quite honest, petty. He can rub it in their nose as he sends them home with a new set of duds and sends his brother back with a small fortune and an entirely new wardrobe. And that too is the Christian life, isn't it? I love the words of C.S. Lewis in Prince Caspian. He talks about how to be a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve is honor enough to raise the head of the lowliest beggar, but it's also shame enough to lower the head of the mightiest king. 
as Luther said, we are simultaneously saints and yet sinners. We are justified and yet sinners. And Joseph gives us this beautiful picture of that. He can be so overwhelmingly magnanimous in his forgiveness. And then in the very next scene, be so amazingly petty in his favoritism. Friends, it's a good thing for us that we have a faithful Savior. And the table that he invites us to this morning speaks of his triumph. His triumph over famine and fear. His triumph over uh, just the ways that our families bring stuff into our lives that isn't necessarily helpful. Speaks a word of victory over the urge to kill those with whom we disagree with. To show favoritism over every aspect of life in a fallen world, the Lord Jesus has triumphed. The table reminds us that not only did Jesus die, but he was also resurrected. And in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus, God has overcome the fall. And so this table points us to another table, a table that tells us there's coming a day in which there will be no more crying, nor death, nor tears. Or again, in the words of C.S. Lewis, it reminds us that everything sad is becoming untrue. Through his son, God has overcome a fallen world to bring salvation to his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful way in which uh, we learn both of our humanity, but we also learn of your salvation and we learn of your forgiveness. Lord, I want to pause this morning because I know uh, for a great number of us, boy, it's family things that just uh, make us nuts. And so, Lord, we bring to you all those conversations that we know we should have with family members, but we can't. We bring to you the hurt. We bring to you the need to forgive. Father, we bring to you that overwhelming need of reconciliation for some within families. And, Lord, uh, we rejoice that you have triumphed over all of that. And so we pray that your shalom your peace would be evident, not just in our relationship with you, but Father, would you make us ambassadors of reconciliation, even within our own families. Lord, some of us have people that we love who do not know you, or if they do, they hide it really, really well. And so we would pray that you would be gracious to them and by extension then to us. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.